This is a podcast by The Straits Times. There is an American lawyer who just uh, used ChatGPT literally to write his arguments for court. And then when the judge looked at the cases that were created by ChatGPT, it was all false. So he's in very much trouble for what we call professional negligence in the US. And that's kind of become like a story that people tell in the legal industry, you know. It's like a parable where, you know, don't be like the ChatGPT lawyer. You're listening to Career Talk, a podcast series by The Straits Times podcast channel, Your Money and Career. At Career Talk, we help you take charge of your own career and make your ambition pay off. I'm your host, Tae Hong Yi. Generative AI, or Gen AI, has come to the fore globally, with the public release of the ChatGPT chatbot in November 2022 kicking off rapid advances in the past year. These models can swiftly generate convincing text and images based on user prompts. Suddenly, it seems jobs thought immune from automation, like those involving creative expression and communication, could be forever changed with Gen AI. Even so, the technology is not omnipotent. Discourse over its responsible use, particularly in the workplace, is just getting started. Here with me to share how workplaces can harness Gen AI, as well as the uptake and perception of Gen AI among Singaporean workers, is Mr. Gavin Barfield, Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for Solutions, Salesforce ASEAN. An IT veteran of over 20 years, Mr. Barfield works in a space where customers, workplace and product are all harnessing Gen AI. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Here with us as well is Assistant Professor Gerald Soule from Singapore Management University. Prof Soule is a faculty member at the Yongpang Hao School of Law, legal analytics startup founder and self-taught programmer. His research interests include the law, policy and ethics surrounding artificial intelligence. Thanks for coming to Gerald. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, this promises to be an enlightening conversation bridging the business potential of Gen AI and ethics to guide such usage. So let's leap into it straight away. Now, one would expect a firm of Salesforce's scale in the tech sector to be exposed to Gen AI from all angles in its own workplace, in its product offerings, and among its customer requirements. So how is Gen AI being used in Salesforce's operations and products and in its customers' organizations? As you mentioned, we've seen an explosion in generative AI over the past year or so. But it's also worth remembering that AI has been around for a long while and Salesforce has been in the AI business for nearly 10 years and we opened our first research center around 10 years ago and we've had Einstein, which is our AI product, embedded in our software for a number of years Um, and predictive AI is operating at scale. So interestingly, globally, uh, Salesforce does 1 trillion um, AI predictions per week. So that's the sort of scale that AI is operating at globally. But as you said, what has become prevalent in the last year or so is the ability to, to, in addition to the predictive stuff, move to the generative stuff, where you're generating new content. And that's opening up a whole new world of opportunities. So, you know, we are customer zero. We use this technology inside Salesforce. We've been using the predictive stuff for a long while, since 2006. And the predictive stuff allows us, so for example, during sales forecast calls, the Einstein predictions can actually tell us if we think the prediction that the account executive is making or the salesperson is making is accurate because Einstein is working off of data. So it can look at a forecast, can look at a prediction, and it can say, I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure the data supports this conclusion on when a particular project may sell or a particular opportunity may progress. 
as in the last uh, few months since July, when we first released generally available generative AI technology, Salesforce has been using it to generate sales emails, follow-up emails. And what we're able to do is use that generative stuff to not just create great sounding emails, but to personalize. And that's what it's all about. It's all about the ability to personalize and personalize at scale. So if you have five customers, you can easily personalize. You write an email to each person grounded with the right data. But when you've got thousands of thousands of customers, you can't get that level of personalization. And generative AI is able to come up with highly personalized content to deliver to each customer. So at the beginning stages, a few, few um, features were rolled out in July, and we'll see more and more features being built in our product uh, over the next uh, so six months, 12 months, 18 months. But Salesforce's angle has really been on trust. So all of this is built about how do you, and I'm sure we'll discuss this later, how do you uh, harness the power of this generative AI but with trust at the forefront? And how do you make sure that the risks associated with this generative AI can be managed at an enterprise level? Is the clamor from generative AI something that is internal to Salesforce that it wants to bring to the market, or is it responding to customer requests for such functionality? We're able to utilize the technology that's available. So when this generative technology has become available, large language models available, we want to make sure that we deliver that product to the customers, but as they deliver it in a trusted way. But we don't see this as a separate application. We see you embedding this generative AI right in the flow of work when you're working. Um, Slack is a great example. We are obviously prevalent users of Slack, as many people are. When you go away for a while, you get hundreds and hundreds of messages on a channel. So generative AI can really summarize those, those messages really succinctly so that you can just save time instead of reading all the threads. So a discussion happened and they agreed the meeting would be at 3 p.m. You don't have to read all of those different chains that happen. So internally at Salesforce itself, how is Gen AI being used in the workplace? Slack is a great example. So we're able to utilize that to be able to help generate content within Slack. We're able to summarize stuff. In Salesforce itself, we can use it to send out these emails uh, and, and these reach outs. What we'll see coming into future releases uh, very soon is the ability to ground prompts in data. So the, the challenge with the generative AA stuff, if you go onto something like ChatGPT, You can ask it to write a sales email and it can write a fairly nice sales email. Dear customer, you know, please, we'd like to meet. We'd like to discuss an opportunity. It's fine, but it's not personalized. It's very generic and most companies won't use it. If you're able to ground that in data, so what what is the customer's challenge? What products does the customer take from you at the moment? Um, Maybe news articles on what that customer's business has been up to. Then you can suddenly come up with a really powerful generative AI response that is tailored directly to that customer. And then it's a very personalized response. So what we're able to do is take the power of large language models, but instead of creating generic answers, grounding that in company, in customer and company data to create very specific, very usable answers in the flow of work. And, and that's really the evolution that we'll see across Salesforce products now and in the future. So Salesforce commissioned a survey released in September on the perception and adoption of Gen AI among Singaporean workers. The survey reports that more than 6 in 10 are concerned that they can't adapt to using Gen AI at work, while 62% are concerned that generative AI will mean fewer opportunities for growth in their industry. So why are these figures of concern and how do we address the underlying issues? Perhaps I would like to open this to the both of you. Maybe I'll just start. I mean, I, I think with all new technology comes anxiety. Uh, And people are worried about new technology coming in and the effect that that may have on their jobs. And they can see how some of this generative AI is able to do things that traditionally they would have done. And the instant reaction is that's going to mean I'm not needed to do those tasks. But I think we can flip it the other way and we can talk about the fact that generative AI can be their, as we said, co-pilot, their assistant to turbocharge their productivity so they can work on more value added tasks. 
it's not just about automating, it's about adding a better layer of customer service, it's about being able to up the game. So if you're going to get humans to do the more uh, value-added tasks and less research typing, you know, content generation, then that really can support that. And I think the survey you mentioned, you know, 93% of Singapore workers says it makes, it makes them more productive at work. So I think people realize the benefits but as you said, you know, there's, there's, there is anxiety, of course, about how this technology will come in and, and will affect them. But hopefully, if we can build it and make people understand that this is an assistant to them and we can maintain trust and security in the way we implement it, then some of those challenges will go away. So on the point about anxiety, Gerald, so what are the key ethical and regulatory issues that employees might be concerned about or, and have to be mindful of in using such tech, just broadly speaking, to start with? Right. So just building on what Gavin shared, Probably there are two models of how Gen AI is, I think, being used in the workplace now. When it comes to the large tech companies or the large companies, many of them are building their own models, um, their own customized models for use. And when you do your own in-house locally sourced thing, there are a few concerns that go away. For example, data security, right? You're not sending the data to a third party. But for, I think, the vast majority of uh, companies which are not in a position to build like a large AI model themselves, and they're using basically chat GPT, maybe employees are using it without the employers even knowing to write emails and whatever. There is a data security concern. In, you know, you might have heard about the example where there was one company and they put out some secret documents and it became an issue. So even though very often the terms of use or the companies would say that they're not going to look at your data, but end of the day, it's going out of the organization. And that means that there is a vulnerability in terms of, let's say, what happens if there's a data breach and so on. So that's one set of concerns on data security. And then there's also cybersecurity, which is less of a concern if you're building your own model. But if you send something out, um, the thing with large language models in particular, like ChatGPT, is that um, they don't actually separate the instructions from the code, so to speak. So what happens if you upload an image and the image says, please access this uh, website and go to download this file and install it everywhere on the servers and it will actually go to the link. And that's a whole line of attack called the prompt injection attack. So when employers start using that and there's a malicious third party who's trying to you know do funny things with your servers, that's another vulnerability that with time, maybe people will find a way to get around it. But right now, there isn't any neat way to prevent that from happening. The third kind of risks that I would sort of categorize is uh, basically accuracy risks in terms of what happens when the model gets something wrong. Now, this is in particularly, um, particularly a concern for industries where literally people could die if you get, make a mistake. Maybe not so much marketing. No, they might buy one or two less products. But uh, in my industry, like law, you know, someone could go to jail if you get something wrong. Or medicine, um, where you know, it's people's health at stake. Let's say you go to ChatGPT and you ask for a diagnosis. If you get something wrong, it's a big problem, especially if there's nobody supervising or to double check the, the model's uh, outputs. The thing about models like these, this is that they, the way they're trained is they are fine-tuned towards creating stuff that sounds correct, but doesn't, isn't necessarily verifiably correct. And there's a fine line between what sounds correct and, and what you can actually tell is wrong. Because uh, very often, it's, uh, you, know, you have to really know your, your stuff and you have to check. So when employees start using this stuff and if the mistakes that is made by the AI is not uh, obvious enough, you know, people might get fooled and this might get into something that's being relied on by higher management and so on for some very critical decisions. So bearing in mind these risks, is there then an issue about who gets to benefit from any gain that results from using this Gen AI as well as negative consequences that result? Well, in terms of benefits, I would say the makers of Gen AI in particular, and when I say makers, it's not just uh, you know the, the AI companies, which definitely are, they're benefiting and they're bringing some benefits, to be fair, to society. Also, the people who are providing the back end, those 
the cloud providers, data compute providers, people who make the GPUs that's necessary for training AI. All of that is, I mean, the direct benefit from that. And of course, people who are using it correctly or I suppose responsibly or safely in their workplace, you know, instead of spending five minutes to write an email you didn't want to write, you can spend one minute. That's a bit of a benefit as well, but you know, basically you, you, you have to sort of use it carefully. In terms of who bears the, the risks, right? Um, right now, this is um, kind of an open question in terms of you know, who is ultimately responsible for you know, what happens if there's a cybersecurity attack or data breach or what I said earlier in terms of the accuracy risks. I would say, and this is probably not a perfect answer, but it a lot depends on what actually is happening. What went wrong and um, to what extent can we trace what went wrong to something that happened in, let's say, the development process of the AI or the deployment process or just the way it was used. Is it a good idea for companies to preemptively draw up rules of engagement with Gen AI instead of letting their employees freely explore? And if so, what are the parameters that companies should consider? Right. Um, that's a great question. So I would say that it very much depends on the industry where we are talking about something more you know, mission critical. Again, law and medicine, right? The consequences of getting it wrong is very high. Then there needs to be some kind of oversight as to give employees a, an idea of you know, what can you rely on the AI for if it's just scheduling or if it's summarizing a Slack conversation. But if it's making a diagnosis or it's, if it's you know, deciding the course of treatment for a patient, then at the very least, you need some kind of independent verification. You cannot just take what is coming out at face value, at least un until a point where the technology is sufficiently advanced that we can be more sure of, about what it's doing. When it comes to other industries, let's say creative industries, you're, you're writing a you know, sales page, you're writing a, making a PowerPoint deck, which, which will probably cover the vast majority of other employers. The, the, the main question is actually really whether you're infringing a copyright of somebody and, and whether, you know, if you generate something, is it exactly the same as a storybook that's written or an image that's written? There are some questions around that and there's still a big debate going on about who is going to be liable for that and everything. Um, but basically, there needs to be some guidelines on, let's say you create something and before you blast it everywhere or print it on every bus stop, you know, maybe check if it's very similar to some other advertising campaign that was maybe even created overseas. So there are some general rules that I would suggest depending on the industry, but it's very much context-specific. And I would also say that it's important to not distinguish generative AI too much from software. So every organization that I know has a software acceptable use policy. And Gen AI is a type of software at the end of the day, right? And what, what you would do is basically, maybe you can tweak the software AUP, um, the acceptable use policy, to, to just have a section on that rather than have a whole thing on Gen AI. And then employees will be wondering, so when I use PowerPoint, if there's an AI bit, Am I using AI or, you know, is there a different policy rather than having two, you would, it would be a bit confusing. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Let's get back to our conversation on the responsible use of generative AI at the workplace with my guests, Mr. Gavin Barfield from Salesforce, and Assistant Professor Gerald Soule from Singapore Management University. So let's get back to you, Gavin. So in Salesforce's case, what are you guys doing to educate employees as well as customers on how to use it responsibly and avoid any risks? Well, I mean, we're quite clear, as you said at the beginning, we're in an AI revolution, but we're also in a trust revolution. And what is existing at the moment is a trust gap. And you have AI, generative AI that's developed in the consumer space. And many of these products do develop in the consumer space. And we're trying down to move those products to the enterprise space. 
And when you move those products to use them from a consumer, something you play around with at home to when you're using it in a business situation, the challenges around that are very, very different. And I think it's, it's naive to think that it's not already here. I mean, our research is showing that 40% or two in five Singaporean workers currently using or experimenting with Gen AI tools, when the majority, nearly 70%, use it to complete their daily work. So people are using these tools, but they're using the consumer version of those tools, which, as we just discussed, comes with some risks, some risks of toxicity, hallucination, not being able to rely on it, data security, models learning from it. And interestingly, I'm sure you'll find this one amusing, 48% are using a GenAI platform that their employer has banned. So nearly 50% are using it anyway. So banning these things doesn't necessarily help. People are able to find ways around it, use personal devices. Uh, I'm a former CEO myself. What worries me more is people using banned technology than using technology that has the proper guardrails and safety around it, and they know how to use it in the correct way. Because if they're using consumer versions of stuff, they're not protected by the legalities behind it. We're also very careful when we use large language models to have zero attention. So no model that we pass data to is able to keep that data and learn from it. That's not the case when you use free consumer versions of these models. Um, data security, how do you make sure that I wouldn't send a customer record to everybody in my email book? I would know not to do that. Every employee would know not to do that. But employees might not know you don't cut and paste that into a consumer Gen AI product because it's in effect doing the same sort of thing. Even worse, you can't delete it and remove it. So... We, we have to sort of be able to move from consumer versions to enterprise versions and put those guardrails and safety around it. And then the large language public models, which are almost like the wild, wild west, where you have no control, no, no ability to, to delete, to, to modify them. How do we make sure we bridge that gap? And that's through things like data masking, zero retention, toxicity detection, audit trails, so that we can make these things more enterprise grade and less consumer grade. Second is around education. And another stat I'll throw at you, you know, at 63%, which is three in five, says their company doesn't provide training on how to use generative AI ethically or safely. And that's where I think there was a big gap as well. So we spend a lot of time um, training our employees and helping our customers. And we have an office of ethical AI where we've set out ethical principles that we will follow, including things like human in the loop. So we always make sure that there's that human in the loop things like transparency, sustainability, that we embed into, into our generative AI policies. And we're making that training available to, to uh, the wider population through Trailhead and other, and other uh, initiatives that we do. So a lot of it is education and training so people understand. You know, people know, do not take something confidential and stick it on a notice board. Everybody knows that. But they don't know you can't take something confidential and stick it into a, a public large language model. So when we talk about the sort of seamlessness in the integration of Gen AI to both existing work processes and creating new work processes, should employees have to declare wherever they are using Gen AI in their work output? We, we believe in transparency around this as well. That's another one of our key principles, that we should be transparent where AI is used and we should be transparent what data is used to train AI models, etc. But 53% of Singapore workers are presenting Gen AI work as their own multiple times. So nearly, you know, well over half of a sort of passing on generative stuff as their own work. Uh, and that throws up, you know, a number of ethical and I'm, I'm sure legal issues around that as well. So I think the way to implement this is through transparency and through trust. So uh, to answer your question, I think it's very important that we let customers know and customers have the right to know when they are interacting with a, a virtual agent, when they're interacting with a human and the right to understand what data we've used to train models and confidence that we would protect their data in the large language model in the same way we would protect it in our company databases. 
coming from a university, it's obviously something that, um, speaking for myself and not representing my employer in any way, it's something that we're obviously very concerned about. I would say we, we don't really need to have a sort of a blanket rule whenever you use GenAI, just disclose, because that would be a bit unwieldy to enforce. Sometimes they're just using it as a chatbot, maybe just messing around and talk, talking to the chatbot. But there are two situations where I think it will be very crucial if there was that transparency that Gavin was talking about. First is when someone is expected to do the writing or the thinking themselves as a matter of learning. So this is your standard educational context where if you are trying to learn how to code, trying to learn how to write a good essay, you have to do it. Uh, and there's really no substitute for just doing the thing to learn the thing. Right, and that's the first context. And the second context is when knowing that it comes from a generative AI is important because it helps us be very careful of any mistakes that could have been made. So it's not about learning anymore, but it's more of what are the consequences if you get it wrong. And there are many contexts, again, in, in mission-critical industries where that I would need to know if, let's say, you submit a legal draft, right? Is this contract clause from a generative AI model? Did you take a second look at it? If you've cited a case law from a, a different court, is this from ChatGPT? Did you check whether it really exists? Because ChatGPT is known to make up cases and principles. So, so that's a different set of situations where you would expect that there needs to be disclosure. So as an educator, as well as someone who has a lot of co-workers in a, quite a large organisation as well, do you get approached for advice on when and where to use Gen AI or whether their current usage of Gen AI is ethical and what are the guidelines or principles you kind of share with them? Right, and this is something I suppose Kevin can relate to. When you are the IT guy in an organization, everyone thinks you can do all of IT. So um, now I've, I'm roped in to help on like OSs to printers to uh, now Gen AI. And yes, um, we have a lot of discussions and we're taking this obviously very seriously in terms of, okay, what is the best way to make sure that students are properly taught how to deal with generative AI? Um, on one hand, we, you know, I teach law and technology and it would be strange if I banned the use of AI in my class. It'd be quite ironic. So I can't do that. So I come up with this strategy where I, I basically have them write a research journal on the process that they went through to do the research. And to the extent that that includes using generative AI, I say that's allowed, but you have to tell me. And, and we discussed this, um, you know, and that there's a higher level committee in the university that looks at this. One thing I've always thought about is, have there been cases where in the haste to adopt Gen AI, have either of you seen examples of people just gravitating to Gen AI for tasks or processes that actually did need Gen AI? Oh, there, there is one um, famous case, I'm sure you've probably heard of it, where there is an American lawyer who just um, used ChatGPT literally to write his arguments for court. And then when the judge looked at the cases that were created by ChatGPT, it was all false. So he's in very much trouble for what we call professional negligence in the US. And that's kind of become like a story that people tell in the legal industry, you know. It's like a parable where, you know, don't be like the chat GPT lawyer. And, you know, when it comes to finding cases, right, that's basically what we train the law students to do in first year. And it's a very tedious process, but you don't need generative AI for that. It can, it can shorten the, the time it takes to get a case. But the problem is, if you don't know whether it's a real case, is that really helping helping you? Because you're going to have to spend much more time to verify that on top of that. And even if you get a real case, the worry is that the generative AI is misstating what the case is about. And then you have to actually go back into the actual case. And you should do this regardless, but you have to read the whole thing and compare it with what was generated and to see whether it actually captures faithfully the spirit of that. So what happens is if you, you submit that and then the court actually looks at it and, and it's, it's a big no-no if you kind of put something misleading or false because it can be as if you're trying to mislead the judge which is not something you want to do as a lawyer. 
I mean, I have a lot of conversation with customers who come to me and say, take a chatbot, for example. They say, let me just hook my chatbot into a large language model. This is not a feature that Salesforce supports. We have the idea of a human in the middle. So for a service, our large language model, our generative AI always has a human who is checking the response and deciding to send that response to a customer or to the editor. Now, technically, you could take a chatbot, and there's companies that do it, that then link that directly into a large language model. And the experience is very nice because a large language model can talk to you in a very nice way, and you can have a very human-like conversation with this generative AI model. Uh, so from a customer experience perspective, it's great. You know, you know, those chatbots can be a bit clunky, right? And you sort of, you know, all those responses, this thing, you're talking to it nicely. But the question is, what is it saying? Now, I wouldn't want to be running a company where I have taken a customer and connected directly to a public large language model without any control. Because as we just said, these things hallucinate. They come up with with data that is not real. There's no way to be able to verify the data that is held in in a large language model. You can't update it. You can't send an email to OpenAI and say, please change this setting about me and your model. (laughs) It learns it. So you, you cannot control that data and you cannot control the recall. Um, and then you get into whole sort of questions of reliability and accountability. So, I mean, as an example, if, if I was an airline and uh, we, I've got my customer chatting away to a large language model without me taking a look at it and it's just talking away and the customer says, oh, I, I didn't like the food on the flight. And the large language model says, no problem, your next flight is first class on us. Where does that leave you? The guy's going to turn up to the airport with, a, you know, your app showing you a, a message to say, I'm entitled to a first class flight. If it does it for 3000 customers, you've got a big problem at check-in. If I could just build off what Gavin shared, I think any area where we have a well-defined system of rules and knowledge and logic to solve that problem is not something that you necessarily want to have generative AI. For example, people talk about how ChatGPT can't do math or can't solve PSLE math questions, for example, right? Um, like, okay, well, we have a calculator for that. You, you don't need to make ChatGPT add 2 plus 5 and sometimes it's going to get it wrong because it's based on correlational predictions. Right. And, and this is true not just in sort of th- these toy examples I'm talking about, but there are many areas where there's a very well-established tradition of traditional, I suppose, good old-fashioned software engineering Right, that's, that's verifiable, that's probably correct, that's explainable. Um, you know, we've landed rockets on the moon using those kind of software and, and we've checked. Do, the benefit of that is that you can check everything that that's works beforehand. And, and I don't see why you would want to use a generative AI model for that because you can get it wrong. And, and I remember at the at the sort of the peak of the AI hype late last year and early this year, people were saying, oh, we don't need operating systems anymore. We don't need anything. We just need ChatGPT, which, which is a surprising thing to hear. But I'm happy that it's not so widespread now. So I think as we look ahead onto the cutting edge, one issue that has recently emerged in the research space is the possibility of model collapse where AI models degenerate if trained on more AI-generated data. Is this currently a real practical risk or is it purely theoretical at this point? It's a real risk. I mean, as AI is generating more and more content, that content is being fed back into the model. You get this loop where, yes, the models can end up learning from stuff that it generated itself. Uh, And that's why I think the answer is not necessarily fine-tuning. Many people think the answer to getting a good large language model is to fine-tune the model. So you'll spend millions and millions of dollars trying to, to put information into the model and get it to respond in the way that you want it to respond with the accurate answers. That's very, very costly and in many cases just simply doesn't work because your ability to influence this model and to train this model yourself, particularly if it's a large language model, a public large language model like OpenAI, is very, very difficult. Possible if, it, if you have a private model or a smaller model that you're able to, to train. 
That's why we think the answer to this is by grounding the prompt with data. So what Salesforce is able to do is pull data because we have data on customers. We have knowledge articles um, on best practice, FAQs, policies. We can bring, and that's trusted information. That's not public information. That's trusted information that's verified, that is approved, that is correct. We can ground the prompt in with that data. And then the large language model, in effect, gets the answer. So if I was a bank, for example, and I wanted to ask, what is the interest rate on a current account? Don't ask ChatGPT because it may say anything, 5%, 7%, and you put your rate up to 10%. You can't go and update it, and you can't fine-tune the model to make sure it always says 10%. So instead, take that 10% from your trusted company information, embed that in the prompt, and tell the large language model the interest rate is 10%. And then the LLM is going to come back with that answer instead of trying to make it up itself. So that's why data grounding, I think, is much more effective than fine-tuning of the models. And partly because you can't rely on the accuracy and maybe over time the accuracy will increase or decrease depending on how these models evolve. So are we already seeing evidence of collapse in the industry, not just in the academic research space? Well, in terms of model collapse, I think the first thing that we should remember is that all these machine learning models at the end of the day, they are trying to approximate the distribution underlying the data in, the, in a very statistical sense. So if the underlying data distribution changes, it will change and it's meant to change to fit what it's getting fed, right? And if it doesn't, something is wrong. Um, so as, as more and more chat GPT or LLM generated stuff gets online, the behavior and the things it generates will change. I, I'm not too worried to the extent that people are still having human oversight. So instead of imagining that you just copy and paste everything that's generated by LLM and you put it out there. I think what people are really doing is they will change a little bit. They might reject things that are not good. So there's still some level of human choice and intuition being put into the writing of stuff that's being posted online. So in that way, it still captures some signal about good or human language, although not, not all human language is good. But in terms of the broader question of whether we are seeing that happening in industry, I think it's a bit early to say Partly because this is a known problem. It's, it's known for a long time that any machine learning model, if you train on the wrong data, it will do the wrong things. Right? It's not something that's unique to LLMs. And, and because it's a known problem, the industry clearly knows how to work around it. And very simply, you know, if I had spent a $10 million training an LLM, before I try to do something else with it, I would keep a copy somewhere else. <laughs> so that if I do something funky and I fine-tune it and it has some, demonstrates some forgetting or demonstrates worse results, I just go back to my instance that I have from the past. So, I wouldn't say I'm too concerned about that in that sense. I think that's a good note for us to end on this podcast. That was Mr. Gavin Barfield and Professor Gerald So on the limits and responsible use of generative AI. Pleasure to be here. Well, that's a wrap for this eighth episode of Career Talk. I'm Tae Hong Yi. If you resonate with the points raised, do share this podcast episode with your friends and family. Please also feel free to share with us your personal experience and concerns about generative AI. You can also get more career and personal finance tips in the latest edition of ST's Head Start newsletter. We have all the links in our show notes too. I'll be back on the second Monday of every month for a career talk. Thanks for listening. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. 
For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A W E D I O.